Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Connections Cafe, a show where top performers working in unique and interesting professions reveal the secrets to their success. Today on the show, we have Divya. Divya is a professional taxidermist and owner of Gotham Taxidermy, based in New York City. I first discovered Divya on Instagram. I'm not sure exactly what I was looking for, but her page was interesting. professional taxidermist and my work spans a variety of traditional taxidermy working with museum clients and things like that but I also do more interpretive and more artistic mounts as well I have clients that like home decor they want things for their homes work with artists to kind of fabricate their fabricate pieces for galleries and stuff and I also do private private commissions as well so that's sort of what what I do and I see that you have a lot of a lot of workshops and events coming up. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, well, during during non quarantine times, I do travel quite a bit for workshops um, and lectures and and things like that. I also travel to go to taxidermy shows and trade shows and expositions as well. So yeah, traveling is it is something I do, and it's pretty fun to share you know to sort of share this art form with people. But when did you? Uh, decide you this is something you wanted to do was it you I don't know picked up a, a raccoon on the side of the road and thought <laughs> hey why don't this would look great in my house how do I prevent it from you know not stinking up the place uh, so <laughs> tell us the origin story sure so it really started when I was when I was pretty young um so when I was around you know six or seven years old I grew up in Miami I've, and I've always lived in a city uh, Miami's mm -hmm. not a, as big of a city as New York is, but it's still a city. It's still pretty urban. It's not. It's not like growing up in the woods or something where, or some sort of setting where you traditionally think a tax service grows up in. But you know, even growing up in Miami, there is urban wildlife there. We did have a small backyard. There was there were things that ran around back there. Whether they were lizards, lots of different birds, all these different butterflies, moths, frogs, you name it. There's a lot of you know. There's a lot of wildlife in Florida. Even in the even in the cities, so I was always looking at that, and I was always so fascinated by that wildlife and seeing seeing how it moves through the day, seeing how seeing how it interacted with different things, like seeing a little lizard running running up a little tree and just grabbing a bug, and just watching animals and creatures be do what they do best, which is just be themselves. Um, and I was always so fascinated by them, and just loved you know I just loved watching them until one day. A one of the lizards that I loved looking at, we had a bug zapper because again, it's Florida, there are lots of mosquitoes and when it's nice outside, when you wanna have dinner and stuff, you sit outside. And I saw this lizard run and chase some bugs up our bug zapper light. It just ran into that light and then it just very quickly just got zapped itself and fell to the ground. And being six or seven years old, this is one of my first encounters with with death at all until all of this time at least from my memory all i remembered were you know animals living i had not seen a dead animal and then when i saw this deceased animal i felt so bad i first felt guilt because i was thinking oh no 
this lizard died because I didn't want bugs, you know, because I didn't want mosquitoes to bite me. And then the next thing I thought was, this lizard is never going to run around again. This lizard is, it's done, it's over, it's, it's just here. So in my child's head, I said, okay, you know, I collect these rocks and seashells and these things that, these things that I find when I'm, when I'm going around Miami, when I'm going around to the beach or anything, taking these trips to the beach or anything like that. And I said, okay, I'm going to, this lizard deserves a dignified end. It deserves to, just because it's dead doesn't mean it should, it should just lay there and rot. So in my head, I thought, I'm going to keep this lizard with my, you know, it was probably like three inches long. It was a really tiny lizard. So I said, I'm going to keep this with all of my rocks and seashells and my, my budding natural history collection. So I took it to my little tin full of, full of rocks, seashells, dried plants, and I put the lizard there. And not even, not even a day later, it just started to smell. And of course my parents found it and they were like, what are you doing? Why is this thing in here? This is gross. You can't just keep it like this. It's not like, it's not like a rock or a seashell. This is an animal. It needs to be the things you see in the museums and stuff and the things you see in, my mom was a science teacher. So the things she was like, you know, the things I have in my teaching collection aren't the same as this in that this is not preserved. So he was buried outside because he was well past preserving and that was not something that is not something my family wanted to be done in the house anyway so he was buried outside and then ever since then I've just been really fascinated by really fascinated by preserved specimens of animals other experiences I had were going to museums seeing these dioramas seeing even seeing very small presentations of animals even seeing small cases of butterflies in them and study skins and things like that that were more that might not have been as flamboyantly displayed as a diorama. They might not have been as excitingly prepared as a diorama, but I just looked at them as works of art because nature is, nature is an incredible artist. So yeah, it just came from there, just seeing, seeing nature, loving it, being enamored by it, and really being enamored by how myself as a human could interact with, could interact with nature. That's really cool. Just out of curiosity, how many days do you give an animal when you decide that it, this is past the point of uh, taxidermy? So it really depends. I mean, so for so for a client, for example, who's bringing me a specimen to preserve, they will usually have it have kept it frozen, and it will be frozen after it's deceased. Everything I work on, like none of the things I work on, are killed for the sake of taxidermy. They're all sourced very sustainably. A lot of times they are, I mean, I would say 90% of the things I work on are, are birds and they're from aviaries or zoos or domestic birds or from museums and nature centers. There are a lot of window collisions or they have salvage permits so they can salvage, salvage protected species. So those things are usually collected with the intent of being preserved and they are and they are kept in a freezer so when they're frozen I mean it just depends on how depends on the conditions before they get freezer burnt or or before they are yeah or as long as their freezer works it should be okay but you just want to keep it from getting freezer burnt as far as picking up roadkill goes that's a very it's a whole other that's no pun intended but it's a whole other animal it's 
kind of it's kind of dependent on the weather outside you know you don't want it to be you don't want those conditions to be super hot if it's super hot outside you don't really have very long until you start to get bacterial damage or epidermal slippage or anything like that you also don't want it to to like physically rot even though a lot of people think taxidermy is really gross i would say working on a specimen is is not that gross it's much, it's pretty similar to I mean, it's pretty similar to being a butcher. If anything, it's a bit cleaner because everything is, you know, cold and frozen. So you don't want it to be, you don't want a specimen to be rotting or anything like that. So with roadkill, it's a bit different. So if it's like, it's a very cold winter day and someone has found a roadkill fox or something, it's probably going to be a little more viable than if it were a very hot summer day. Would you say that that's worst part of the job working on something on a specimen that's not I guess up to par or in ideal conditions or is there something else that you can think of? I mean I guess I don't know I would say probably the worst part of the job would be I mean I guess it would be a, a specimen that wasn't like super well cared for that would be a pretty bad part of it but you know my start with taxidermy it wasn't with these like perfect you know museum quality specimens my start in learning taxidermy was being self-taught with picking up roadkill, finding out how do I get, how do I do this legally, first of all, because that is one thing a lot of people think that, oh, if it's roadkill, you can just pick it up. That's not necessarily true. The laws vary a ton state by state. So that's like the first thing to, that's the first thing people need to check out before they just pick up, before they just pick up dead things um, and how to pick it up safely as well. So using all the, using all the PPE. So using all of using all of that stuff, but yeah. So because I started with specimens that were less than ideal as far as condition, not so much in not so much in the odor and gross out department, but more in the condition department. You know, a roadkill squirrel isn't going to be as nice as one that was at a zoo or something or at a, na a nature park where it was cared for during its whole life. You know, a wild animal is going to be much rougher it will have lived and depending on how it's passed could have passed in a in a way that would make it have scars or have damage or or other things like that so so yeah so i started with things that were less than ideal so i wouldn't say that is the i don't know i wouldn't say like a less than ideal specimen is the worst part of the job if anything it's made me more appreciative of specimens that i get now which are in much which are in much much better shape but I guess once in a while, when I do get something that is past its prime that I wasn't aware of, that would be the worst part. The other worst part, I think even more than that, would be, since I work with clients all around the US, shipping. So you can ship frozen specimens. It happens a lot more than people realize. There are a lot of, there are a lot of packages marked perishable that are, that are specimens bound to, bound to taxidermists across the country. But sometimes shipping can be very stressful because you're shipping something perishable and if it doesn't arrive in time you are you are just counting down the counting you're counting down your yeah you're just instead of like very stressful countdown the raw specimen shipping is the most stressful when it's preserved i know it's going to arrive you know i know that it won't it won't rot while it's being shipped but the raw specimen a frozen someone were sending me someone were sending me some frozen birds and that package is delayed that is just so stressful. <laughs> I think what's uh, what's funny, I just thought of this, is if I got a frozen specimen, let's say a bird, I, and I open it, it's sent to me accidentally, I would think, what is this, a hate crime? 
you know? (laughs) But if I got a taxidermy bird, I'd be like, oh, awesome. Yeah, it's funny how, it's funny how that works, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, What would you say is the, the best part of the job? I mean, it sounds like you like just about every aspect of it, but if you had to pick the best part of the job or maybe a really cool experience you had with either a client or the process of doing taxidermy, anything like that? I mean, honestly, I would say the best part, every good experience I've had in taxidermy has had to do with a love of animals. It's had to do with education, inspiring people to take action towards conservation, towards caring about animals, towards caring about natural history. I think that is that is the best part by far of the job. Okay. Is there like a dream animal you'd like to taxidermy one day or anything along those lines? That's so tough because, you know, I've got to work on some really cool things. Like, you know, I've got to work on some really cool things. I think a dream animal of mine would be uh, any bird of paradise. There are lots of different species, but I would settle for for any bird of paradise to come across a, a museum or a nature center that would want one of those mounted for their collection. I think that would be, that would be a dream come true. Okay. Can you give us an example of a bird of paradise? Totally honest, I have no idea what that means. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to animals. I just know how to feed them, and you know if they bite me, they bite me. Probably my fault. <laughs> That's all right. So, do you want me to give you like a physical description of a bird of paradise? Maybe I can Google it. I think that might be better. Actually. Well, yeah, you can Google it. I mean, when people listening can Google it. But they're basically birds that are they're in New Guinea. Their name actually has a really cool history. So. When people first, there clearly there were people living in New Guinea and they've seen these birds, they have lived with these birds, and they're amazing because there are no, at a time there were no really big predators for all of these birds, so they evolved to have just these spectacular colors, just really, almost like just the most gorgeous aliens you can think of, combined with like the most colorful, like, Jim Henson character, you know, like they're kind of, they're just out of this world. They're just so gorgeous. It just, it's, it's a whole family of birds. So it's not like a bird of paradise looks any one particular way. There's like, you know, the Wilson's bird of paradise, the greater bird of paradise, the lesser bird of paradise. There's, there's so many, there's so many types of them and they're so colorful because they didn't have predators for a long time. For a long time, people also never saw, I think the story goes that they didn't see their feet So they would just see them in the air and they would just see them flying. So they said that these birds were dropped from, you know, I might be getting part of the story wrong, but they were dropped from the heavens by, they came down from heaven and they're from, they're from paradise. And that's why they're so beautiful. And people thought, oh, they don't have any feet. (laughs) So because they don't need to, they don't need to land. They just live in, they just live, you know, in paradise up there. We just see them. So so they are they are really cool birds. So some have these really long plumes. Like the, the males tend to be more more extravagant looking, I guess, or more brightly colored. They have these really long plumes. One of them, you know, they do these amazing displays where they kind of fluff their feathers up and fan them out and do these dances to court the females. So they're just an amazing and just a really fascinating group of group of birds, I guess, a group of family of birds. Are there any common misconceptions to people, you know, look at you differently when they learn that you're a taxidermist? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of misconceptions with taxidermy. I think particularly when people meet me, they don't expect to see me 
I am like straight up like the opposite of everything that's stereotype in their head. Like I'm brown, I'm a woman, like I am usually like I love dressing up, so I'm usually like wearing something fun. You know, I'm like the opposite of what I think a taxidermist should be. But yeah, so that's just that's just like I find I kind of sometimes I get a kick out of that. Sometimes I'm frustrated with it because I'm like, why can't it's 2020? Like everyone has every type of job now. So why is it so unexpected? Like, you know, why is it so unexpected? But but you know, that's just I guess that's just part of part of working in the arts and sciences now is that people are now realizing that all different types of people are interested in these in these jobs. Another wider misconception that is not just about me is that people think taxidermists don't like animals, that they hate animals, and they really don't understand the connection to the education and conservation aspect of it. A lot of people have this idea that it is, you know, and it comes from it comes from, you know, the 1800s where we would, where you'd have these explorers going out into the world, just plucking like two of everything, taking it back, mounting it and putting it in a private collection or something like that. When people think of that and they think of taxidermy now and they say, well, why can't you just use a photo? Why can't you just do this? You're killing animals for no reason. When really that's not the case. I mean, every taxidermist I've met, whether they're whether they're some of the old school taxidermists that are people who have taught me things that I know, or whether they're my own peers who are younger and getting into taxidermy, whether it's for science or for art or for something in between, they all have one thing in common, which is they love animals and that they really care about our environment and care about protecting wildlife and preserving wild habitats. So. I think that's the biggest misconception and I'd say that's the most that's probably the most challenging thing to to talk to people about and to get them to understand it. Yeah, but there's got to be a, an animal you like just absolutely hate, right? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of animals, a lot of uh, venomous animals. I don't want to encounter them one-on-one. -on -one. Saying I love animals also means I also like to maintain distance from them too. I volunteer a lot with different groups around the city. Almost every taxidermist I know does this too. It's not, it's not unique to me. There's a lot of volunteering that they do because we really know animals because we see them from the inside out. <laughs> so we really yeah, know literally. a lot about animals so it kind of motivates us to care for them, to care for them more. But it also, for me personally, it, it motivates me to, to know, to have that separation between wildlife, to, to not anthropomorphize wildlife too much, I should say, to sort of let wildlife be wild and let it tell people that you can love animals without wanting to, to make them all your pets. So sometimes I'll see people say, oh, I have, I found this baby raccoon and because of my experience with volunteering with wildlife and stuff, they're like, oh, how do I keep this as a pet? And I'm like, no, you shouldn't do that. That's a horrible idea. You should take that to, you found this baby animal, take it to a wildlife rehabber. Don't, don't keep it as a pet. So sort of teaching people how to love animals is, is a subset of the problem of teaching people about conservation. And when you do encounter people who love animals like pets, I, I see on your website that you also work on this. Yeah, I do. I do have a limited, every every year I take a limited number of pet commissions. Um, and those are domestic animals. They're not, they're not usually, they're not people who are stealing wildlife. Those are usually 
<laughs> most of them are it's not pets. like a tiger yeah yeah no <laughs> no i no. i will not yeah. work with uh <laughs> i will not work joker. with yeah <laughs> yeah joker. oh my gosh um yeah so i'm not really i don't think any of those people even want to contact me anyway but I, all the like the pet people i work with are mostly pet birds a lot of a lot of like budgies and lovebirds and parakeets and things like that and once in a while I'll do, once in a while I'll get requests for dogs and cats, but the thing with dogs and cats is that they're very complex. It takes, it takes a really long time because you're sculpting, sculpting everything from, from that animal and making it, you know, it can't look like a dog, it can't look like a cat, it has to look like this cat or this dog. So it can take eight to 12 months or sometimes longer because it just needs, just requires so much attention. That is something I never thought of. For some reason, thought that doing animals, doing pets would be a lot easier just because they're typically larger than, I don't know, some, something like a fish or a bird. But I can only imagine what my dog's skin or hide, whatever you call it, uh, would look like on a different shaped dog, I guess. It'd be pretty and unhappy. I don't know what I would do with it because <laughs> I don't want to throw it away. I guess I have a new dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with, with pet taxidermy, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely another, it's a whole other challenge because in that case you are, you are, you're working with an animal that someone has known for, in a lot of cases, decades. Whereas my only experience with it is through the photos and videos that they're able to show me. I mean, I have pets of my own, like I, I adore and love my pets, but it's also, you're working with someone else's pet, they're not necessarily like your own pet. They, they might have different quirks, and especially, you know, especially with, especially with the mammals, their, their faces are different, their little expressions, like they have so many muscles in their faces. Okay, last question is, okay. is there something you can teach us in the next four minutes, or what advice would you give your younger self? Ooh, let's get, I kind of want to go with what to teach in the next four minutes because you know, there's so much about taxidermy that I could talk about. There's so, there is a lot of, yeah, there's so much to teach about taxidermy. I guess I'd want to narrow it down because I'm like, what, what, what thing would I teach if it was just one thing? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> this is one thing I would teach about taxidermy. Or anything. It doesn't have to be taxidermy. It could be anything that's interesting to you. Anything that's interesting. Oh my gosh. This is... <laughs> I would just say to to dig deeper than surface level with everything. With taxidermy, like a lot of people just see it as something that's skin deep. They don't see it as something any deeper than skin. So that everything in life is a little more, um, everything in life that you kind of think of is a little more than skin deep. <laughs> that's, I guess, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you have been an absolute pleasure to speak with. Not at all what I thought a taxidermist would be like, and it's, <laughs> it's kind of nice. It's kind of cool, actually. Taxidermists are be... an interesting bunch. I guess that's what I would tell people. That would be the about the thing I teach people is go make friends with the taxidermists. They're probably they're probably not what you expect. <laughs> all right. Well, that does it for this episode of Connections Cafe. I want to thank our guest Divya for an awesome interview. You can follow Divya on Instagram at Gotham underscore Taxidermy or visit her website, GothamTaxidermy.com. All right, guys, as always, stay safe out there. Talk to you soon. Bye.